I remember in literature classes, teachers saying all the time that one of the most important things that you do when you write, whether it's an essay or a short story or a novel or a speech, is to grab the audience's attention immediately. Use that opening line to just grab their attention and draw the audience in. And we don't need anyone to teach us that because we know that that matters. In fact, we have a library of things running around in our heads of introductory statements that have impacted our lives or at least help us to remember the works from which they came. Once upon a time. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events we find these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, space, the final frontier. Or if you like lesser science fiction that's not as good and poorly written, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. And so when it came to writing this sermon series, and really any sermon series in any sermon, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what is the best way to start this off. How can I grab attention immediately so we all can focus and know that we're about to interact with God's word? And so as I was sitting down writing this sermon, I was looking for the right words for admittedly far too long before realizing that they were right in front of me. In the beginning. There's just no better way to start. They cornered the market from the very beginning. Those three words have such power and grab our attention right away in the beginning. I think it's so profound because we know the beginnings are important. It's why we read biographies. We want to know about the things that made these men and women who have made a huge impact on the world. We want to know about the formative things that happened in their lives that made them who they were. I hate if I get to a movie 10 minutes late because I know there's a good chance that I'm not really going to understand a lot of the stuff that comes later because so much is tied into the beginning. Marvel has made literally billions of dollars off of telling superhero origin stories, some of which are 50, 60, 70 years old and have been told literally hundreds of times, but we still need to know that Peter Parker was bitten by a spider and Uncle Ben died, and with great power comes great responsibility, and so we'll watch it again and again. That one in particular, I think six times over the last 12 years, there's been a Spider-Man origin story to the point where this most recent one that I watched, The End of the Spider-Verse, very fun little movie, made a joke through the entire thing about how many times we have heard Spider-Man's origin story, but we still want to hear it again because beginnings are so foundational and they make us into who we are and they lay the foundation for everything else that follows. And the same is true for scripture. We believe that the Bible is God's word, that God breathed out scripture, that it has inspired the word of God. And because of that, we believe that God is sovereign over his word. And even the layout of his word, the form and the order of these 66 books that make up this one big story of God redeeming his people, we believe that he laid it out exactly as it should go through time and space and history. And so God's introduction matters. God's beginning in scripture is something that should make us pay attention in part because it's our beginning. It's the beginning of everyone and everything. And so as we look over these next several months at Genesis chapters 1 through 11 and then leading into the beginning of chapter 12, we're going to see 
God introduce himself. Taking us all the way back to the beginning. Telling us who he is as he is. And also laying a foundation for everything that would follow. From the opening line of Genesis, God is telling us how we should see and understand Scripture, how we should know and how we should worship Him, and how we should see ourselves and the remaining course of human history until Jesus comes and makes all things right and all things new. And it is my prayer, and I hope that you'll join me in this prayer, that as we go through these pages of Genesis, and as we look through God's introduction that we would come out on the other side of this, knowing God more, loving him more, and being able to worship him more properly and better than we ever have before in our lives. And so with that said, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, we do thank you, and we always thank you for your word. But God, today I thank you for your first words. The words that take us back to the beginning. The first words that you chose to speak to your people through your word. And God, I thank you for the profound foundation of the book of Genesis. And that you make this awesome declaration of who you are and how we should see you and what we should know about you. And so, Father, I pray that you help us to lay all of our preconceived notions to the side. And that we would come to this text over these next several months, desperately and earnestly seeking to know you for who you are and worshiping you. For the incredible and amazing God, creator, sustainer, and redeemer that you have shown yourself to be from the very beginning throughout all generations. So God, we do ask that you speak through your word. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So... When you have a sermon series called Introducing God and you're talking about the importance of beginnings, then a nice introductory sermon is important. And so that's what we're going to do today. And I want to just ask three simple questions about Genesis and how we should approach Genesis that will help us understand what Genesis is trying to teach us and then also how we'll be approaching this scripture for the next few months. And those questions are simply, what is Genesis? How do we read Genesis? And why should we read Genesis? And I think this will give us a nice foundation for moving forward as we approach these 11 incredible chapters of Scripture. And so first, what is Genesis? First and foremost, Genesis is a story. And from the very beginning, God is intentional about letting us know that he is bringing us into the story with those first three words, in the beginning. It sets us in time, it sets us in space, and it draws us in like a good storyteller. And we saw, as we looked through the book of Luke, as Jesus, the Word made flesh, as Jesus, the exact image of God, revealed to us that God is a master storyteller. As Jesus would communicate deep truths about the kingdom, not simply by speeches, but by parables. 
and telling stories and putting people in that mindset. And the Bible as a whole is no different. It is a story. And that story begins in the book of Genesis. The Bible is a big story, but in fact, the Bible is the big story. It's the story that encompasses all other stories. It encompasses my story and your story and every other story that's ever been written. And so Genesis takes us back to the very beginning of all of that when the God of the universe set that story into motion. But it's important to know that it is not our story, even though we often think it is, even though I often think it is. I've told you before, there is a little part of me deep down in the recesses of who I am that I just assume when I leave a room, the rest of you all just shut down, (laughs) that I leave a room and everyone else just and just wait for me to come back. And then I return and everyone boots back up like some sort of Toy Story situation or something. And that that's just how everything works, that the world kind of sort of revolves around me a little bit. And because I just don't know what happens when I leave the room. And so we can be guilty of thinking, whether it's from a malicious intent or just because it's how our brains are wired to work, that we are the center of the universe and that we are the center of the story and that my life is my story. But even though we have a big role in God's story, even though, as we're going to see, all of our parts that God allows us to play matter deeply and echo throughout eternity, this is not our story but it's God's story. In the beginning, God. No one else is mentioned. Nothing else is mentioned. It is God, and that is it, and that is the way that it should be. Genesis teaches us that we should learn to see God as the central figure of the big story of time and space and history. This is all God's story. He just allows us to have a part in it. And so from the very beginning, Genesis quietly assures us that you are important and you matter because this is the big story that encompasses all the other stories and your part is just as important as any other part that's ever been played except for the fact that you are not ultimate. God is the ultimate part of this story. And so instead, we have to learn to see our lives We have to learn to see scripture, and we have to learn to see the book of Genesis not as our story that everyone else gets to be a part of, but as God's story that is for God's people. And that's exactly what Genesis is. It's God's story, the introduction of God's story, revealing himself to God's people so that they can worship him and so that they can live in a way that honors and glorifies him and plays that important part in the story in which we've been placed. Genesis is also a declaration. I've always been fascinated by royal entries. This is a little bit of just like a narcissism confession this morning, I think. But I've been very fascinated by royal introductions where royal people would come in depending on the generation and on the timeline. They would either walk in or maybe a horse and carriage or a motorcade of some sort. And you'd have music playing and there's the big trumpets, you know, the really long ones that have the flags hanging from them. I don't know where you find those, but I would like at least one in my instrument collection. And a very large trumpet and they play the trumpet and they play the music and there's the pomp and the circumstance and the fanfare and 
all the confetti and the people that have to clean it up afterwards, which has to be a really oh, just frustrating job as you clean up someone else's mess just all of the time. And so they walk in, and so there was this excitement and this energy because the king and the queen or the prince and the princess, they're making their introduction, and so they wanted to make this declaration so everyone could know. But that's a little fancy for me. And so I think really what I relate to most is professional wrestling walk-up music. Now, you might be here and you might say, oh, I don't watch professional wrestling. You have at some point in time. Everyone does. It's awesome. And it's a lot of fun. And at least for a season in your life, you should just watch a little bit of it because it's just the weirdest thing that's ever taken place in the course of human history. And I think it just ties us all together. But in case you're here and you have actually never watched professional wrestling, then one of the most awesome things that happens is when it's time for a wrestling match, before the wrestlers come out, they don't just walk out to the ring. They don't just appear in the ring and wait around no they make an entrance and they all have their own special music and their own special video and their own special pyrotechnics that happens so you know when a certain kind of music hits that this wrestler is coming out and you can get excited and you can prepare for their introduction i've always wished that anytime i walked into a room that would happen it would be so great to have my own theme song that when something was going on and anybody was happening and doing their normal stuff in a room, that a certain song would play. I can't decide what it is, and so that might be a problem. I'd have to really figure out which one it is, and I haven't picked my song yet, and I've been thinking about it a lot, way too much, for a very long time. Like most of my life, I've been trying to figure this out. But a song would play, and people would think, oh, Chris is in here, because it has that impact. I hate baseball. I've made that very clear. I, I, don't, I don't shy away from that. I find it dreadfully boring. But I hear Crazy Train, and I assume Chipper Jones is walking into a room because we've been conditioned to know that when certain music plays, something is going to happen. It's a declaration of something about to take place. And Genesis chapter 1 is kind of like God's walk-up music. It's a declaration about who God is. The only God, the God of the universe, is making his presence known and declaring to his people that not only that he exists, but this is who he is and this is how he should be worshipped. A lot of times, and I don't think this is new to, to modern Christians, I don't think this is something unique even to American Christians, a lot of times when we come to scripture, we are looking for me. Not me. I mean, you don't come looking for the passage on Chris Dills. We all come looking for ourselves in Scripture. We want to jump immediately to how does this passage of Scripture apply to me? How does it make my life better? How does it fix the problems that I have? What does this passage mean for me? But Genesis reminds us that we should be looking for him. That the whole point of Scripture is that we find and understand and know who God is. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but spoiler alert, when we get into the meat of Genesis chapter 1, as we see this incredible telling of God's creation of the heavens and the earth, a weird thing happens. On day one of creation, God says, let there be light. On day four of creation, God creates the sun and the moon and the stars and the things that we associate with light. At the end of the Bible... In Revelation 21 and 22, as we see this picture of the new heavens and the new earth, as Jesus comes and makes everything right and everything new, as John is giving us a description of what this world looks like, he says everything looks pretty normal, just incredibly maxed out, 
except for the fact that there is no sun, because God himself is the light. And all through scripture, we see that kind of language attributed to God, that he is the source of light, and because of that, he shines light on everything else. In the book of Proverbs, in chapter 1, verse 7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. Genesis 1 reminds us that long before we should be looking in Scripture, trying to figure out how we should live or what we should do or how God is going to fix all of our problems and put all these things in the road the way that we want them to be done, before we go to Scripture looking on how to have a happy marriage or be better kids or better parents or whatever these things are that we go to Scripture looking for, Genesis says long before you do that, you should go looking for who God is because unless we know who God is, we can't possibly know any of these other things. But God is the light that illuminates everything else. And so as we come together each and every week, we are looking at God's declaration of himself. And so we should be looking to know God with awe and expectation. And I wonder if that's one of the words that we've started to weed out of Sunday morning church in a world where we can have incredibly large spiritual experiences that we stop coming Sunday after Sunday expecting God to move in an incredible way. And so I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to ask the same thing of myself, that each week when we come together talking about the book of Genesis, that we would come expectant expecting that God is going to reveal something about his character that is going to blow us away, that we are going to encounter God in an incredible and awesome way and allowing scripture to speak to our hearts, move us in a way that we've never moved before, not by giving us some direct application, but simply teaching us who God is and how God works. And then hoping that we'll be like Moses, who Moses, when he got to see just a glimpse of the glory of God, just a momentary passing of God's uniqueness and God's beauty and God's majesty. Scripture tells us that Moses came down the mountain and his face was shining with the radiance and the glory of God because he had encountered God in that incredible way. And we should expect the same thing to be true of each and every one of us, that our countenance, that our faces will be different because we have encountered the goodness of God each and every week. And then finally, Genesis is an apologetic, a defense of truth, but maybe not in the way that you expect. The ancient world in which Genesis was written was a world filled with so many gods, and not much has changed. Of course, we have other religions all over the world and false gods and people that worship a variety of things, but we found a really good modern way to add a whole lot of other gods to that. And what we find is the problem of idolatry that all of us encounter at some point in time where we find ultimate meaning or ultimate purpose or provision in anything or anyone other than God. And Genesis comes out as an apologetic against that. In the beginning, God. Not any other false god, not any other religion, not any other ideology, not any of your stuff, not any of the things that you find your hope or your security in. In the beginning, there was God, and he is ultimate, and he is supreme, and there was no one or nothing else but him. And because of that, he alone deserves our worship, he alone deserves our affection, he alone deserves our devotion. In his book, Age to Age, a man named Keith Matheson said, 
that when we look at Scripture, an examination of the structure of Genesis indicates that the creation in Genesis 1 and 2 functions as a prologue or introduction to the book as a whole. And in this prologue, the people of Israel learned that their God, the God who brought them out of Egypt, is not merely some local tribal deity. He's not like the false gods of the surrounding nations. Instead, he is the creator of the universe and the only true God. He is the sovereign king over all. And so Genesis calls us to find our ultimate hope, our ultimate meaning, our ultimate purpose, our ultimate safety, security, and provision in God and in God alone, telling us that there is no other God. There is no one equal to God. There's no one that can stand against God or even stand with God. And so because of that, Genesis calls us to take our idols, to take the little gods in our lives, and to throw them at the throne of the creator of the universe who reigns supreme. And so we're going to look some, as we'll talk in just a moment, of the cultural context of Genesis and how Genesis came out like a cannon blast against all of their worldviews and ideologies and false gods, dismantling them and shattering them and revealing what real, true, omniscient, omnipotent power looks like. And so Genesis is a story, a declaration, and apologetic. But how do we read it? How do we read Genesis? And this is a question that we should ask any time we approach any part of Scripture. Because the Bible is an incredibly unique book. The Bible is one book, and it tells one big story. Like I said, from beginning to end, the Bible is telling us about how the good God who created the heavens and the earth and created them good is redeeming and restoring his people and bringing them back to the place that they should be. And so it's one big book and one big story, but it's also a library of books, 66 to be precise. And these books are made up with a variety of different genre and different style written by different authors over great expanses of time. And so when we come to any passage of scripture, we need to be asking ourselves, how can I read this properly? How can I read this section of scripture well? And Genesis is especially one of those cases. So when we approach Genesis, first and foremost, we should approach it as an ancient book. Genesis is a very old book. One of the things that I love about God, as we look through Scripture, we see the Ten Commandments. We see the tabernacle. We even see Jesus, again, speaking through parables. And we see that God always speaks to his people in a way that they can comprehend and in a way that they can understand. And so when God speaks to these Hebrew people living so many generations ago, thousands of years ago, God, through the book of Genesis, is speaking to them in a way that they could understand. And so it's important for us to try to put ourselves as best we can into that same mindset. And John Walton, who's written volumes and volumes about how to understand the Old Testament, especially Genesis, writes this. He says, we like to think of the Bible possessively. It's my Bible, a rare heritage, a holy treasure, a spiritual heirloom. And well, we should. The Bible is fresh and speaks to each of us as God's revelation of himself in a confusing world. It's ours, and at times it feels quite personal. But we cannot afford to let this idea run away with us. The Old Testament does communicate to us, and it was written for us and for all humankind, but it was not written 
to us. It was written to Israel. It's God's revelation of himself to Israel and secondarily through Israel to everyone else. Rather than translating the culture then, we need to try to enter the culture. And so this means that when we come to Genesis, because Genesis, I think the end cap books, Genesis and Revelation, are two books in Scripture where we come with, especially if you've been in or around church culture for a lot of time, or you've really just heard much about it growing up living in the South, Genesis and Revelation, we come to those books with a lot of baggage about what we think that they're about and the questions that we think they're supposed to be answering. But we want to be very careful to never superimpose our ideas or our understandings on Scripture, but let it speak directly to us. And so as we go through Genesis, we're going to try our best to be good students, entering into the culture and not imposing ours in it. Not asking questions of Genesis that Genesis isn't trying to answer or imposing our assumptions or our worldviews on this text, but allowing Scripture to speak to us. And so I'll probably, over the course of these next few months, make a lot of references to the ancient Near Eastern world, the world in which these events in Genesis take place, and the audience of Genesis would have been living and acting and moving so that we can try to understand Genesis the way that Genesis is communicating to us, realizing that it wasn't written to us as the original audience, but that it has importance for us, and that it is good for us, and that it is fresh for us, and it is speaking the truth of God to us but we want to allow it to speak to us and not just talk over what Genesis is trying to teach us. So it's an ancient book. We should also read Genesis as, and this is a little bit of a bigger phrase, as theological history. If you want a paraphrase of that, history that teaches us about God. Like I said, Genesis is story. It's history. It tells us about things that happened, but it's so much more. John Walton helps us understand the the mindset of people as they approach religion in the ancient world. And it says the Israelites, along with everyone else in the ancient world, believed instead that every event was an act of deity. That every plant that grew, every baby born, every drop of rain, and every climatic disaster was an act of God. For them, no natural laws govern the cosmos. Deity, or God, ran the cosmos and was inherent in it. And then he continued to say, there was nothing natural about the world in biblical theology, nor should there be in ours. And so when we approach Genesis, we're seeing some really important and profound things, but it could be easy, especially once we get out of Genesis 1 and 2 and into 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, as we start seeing stories and people take place, it could be really easy to just log these in our minds as good Bible stories or historical information or maybe even stories with a nice moral at the end. But that's not the purpose of Genesis. Genesis is reminding us that God is using time and space and history to make a declaration of who he is. And so we don't simply come looking for facts, nor do we come looking for a moral on how to live a better life, but we come looking into these events that took place to see the fullness of God on display through the history of Genesis. Because long before this book was written, God was revealing himself through the lives and through the events and through the stories of these people. And so when we encounter this, we're going to come looking for the character of God and recognizing this as God-shaped history that reveals his character and his nature to us. And then we read it through the lens of Christ. 
We read it as an ancient book, as theological history, and then through the lens of Jesus. I love this story that Charles Spurgeon tells, and I've told it before, but it's, it's worth repeating. In Spurgeon's sermon, Christ Precious to Believers, he talks about the interaction between two pastors. One is an older seasoned pastor, and one is a young pastor just getting his start. And this young pastor preaches a sermon while the old pastor is in the congregation, which is an overwhelmingly unnerving thing for a young pastor. But he preaches a sermon, and then he comes and he talks to the older pastor after the sermon, which I have learned, don't ask people for input on the sermon right after the sermon. Give it some time to settle. You don't need immediate feedback all the time because it might be disappointing. But so this young pastor comes to this older pastor, and he says, how did I do? And I'm sure he was nervous, and he was excited, and he was expecting, and maybe he felt like he killed it. You know, like he got off, and this is the worst time to ask somebody. If you feel like you killed it, it's possible that somebody else didn't. And so if you're like, so what would you think of my sermon? And they're like, ah, it's a real big downer. And so he comes to this older pastor, and he's expectant, and he's ready. He says, what did you think of my sermon? And the older pastor says, well, it was a very poor sermon. <laughs> Not a poor sermon, but a very poor sermon. And the young pastor is so confused. He says, why do you think it's such a bad sermon? What's the problem? Is it, I, I put all the preparation work into it. I feel like I had great style. I think I handled the text fairly well. What was the problem with my sermon? And the older pastor said, there was no Christ in it. And the young pastor says, well, okay. I mean, okay, you want to Jesus juke me here. That's fine. But listen, that text didn't deal with Jesus. He says Christ was not in the text. We are not to be preaching Christ always. We must preach what's in the text. And the old mentor replied in this way. Don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there's a road to lead to London? And the young man said, yes. The old preacher said, ah. And so from every text in Scripture... There is a road to the metropolis of the scriptures that is Christ. My dear brother, your business is when you get to a text to say, now what is the road to Christ? And then preach a sermon running along the road towards the great metropolis Christ. And he said, I have never yet found a text that had not got a road to Christ in it. And if I ever do find one that is not a road to Christ in it, I will make one. I will go over hedge and ditch, but I would get at my master, for the sermon cannot do any good unless there be a Savior of Christ in it. And that's the way that we're taught to see Scripture. Remember, in the book of Luke, at the very end, after the resurrection, Jesus sits with his disciples and he says, Now it's time for me to explain to you how I told you all the law and all the prophets were about me. And when we look at Matthew's gospel, Matthew takes a lot of Old Testament passages, and it looks like he takes them very much out of context, but what he actually does is puts them in the context of Christ. And so as we look through the book of Genesis, we are going to find those roads to Jesus as we see the fullness of God on display. And when we talk about the fullness of God, we mean the fullness of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we are going to find our roads that lead us to Christ and read the book of Genesis with gospel eyes. And so that's how we should read the book. And then finally, why? Why should we read Genesis? These reasons are pretty simple and may seem pretty obvious. 
but I think we could all use a good reminder. First and foremost, it is God revealing himself to us. It is God speaking to us. In a few weeks, we're going to read a passage, again, spoiler alert, where God says, let there be light, and, spoiler alert, there was light. God spoke, and light happened. We live in 2019, and I still don't have that capability in my house. I can say light, but I still have a switch to turn it on. And yet here, in the beginning, God, because of his power and his enormous majesty, said, let there be light, and there was light. All through Genesis chapter 1, God speaks and creation itself moves. And so a God with that kind of power in his word has chosen to use his voice to speak to his people. And anytime God speaks to his people, we better listen. And so we should take advantage of reading God's word. And so when we come to Genesis, we should take it as a privilege to sit and listen as God speaks. But also we read it because it's the foundation for everything that follows. Genesis is the foundation for all of Scripture. The great reformer Martin Luther said that Genesis is certainly the foundation of the Bible. The Christian thinker Francis Schaeffer in the 20th century said, in some ways these chapters, these first chapters of Genesis, are the most important ones in the Bible. Because Genesis lays this foundation. It's the declaration of God and his character and who he is. It lays the foundation for everything else that we see. It teaches us to understand God as he is and to know him for who he is. And even when we get into Genesis 3, we're going to see foreshadowings of the gospel itself on display. And so Genesis teaches us how to read scripture. It gives us that starting point. It gives us that beginning that helps us to be good and faithful readers of the Bible and good and faithful followers of God. But we also read it because it's good for us. I know I've hammered a lot today on not being self-interested when we read Scripture. But we know that Scripture is good for us, that there is application in the Bible, that there is God shaping us and helping us to understand who we are and how we should think and how we should live. And Paul, as he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy, when he's talking particularly about the Old Testament in this passage because the New Testament was being written as Paul wrote these words, in 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the people of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And so we can know that when we come to Scripture, when we read Scripture, every single passage of Scripture comes with it, that promise that it is good for us and that we will be blessed in its reading and that we will be shaped and molded into the people that God has made us to be. And even more than that, there is salvation truth in every passage of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And then finally, we should read Genesis because it makes us better worshipers. And I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that that is one of my hopeful and expectant goals. That as we go through these early chapters of Genesis, that we would see God for who he is, that we would be in awe of how God works, that we would see his majesty and his power and his love and his kindness and his graciousness and even even the parts of him that are hard for us to wrestle with, with God's judgment of sin and God's righteousness and God's holiness. We would see all of these things and we would be overwhelmed with awe and because of that, we would be better worshipers. 
that when we come together on Sunday mornings and when we sing songs, that we would sing songs to the creator of the cosmos who spoke everything into being and that our countenance and the way that we sing would be changed because of the words that we hear. When we confess and when we pray that all of these things would be shaped and renewed by the power of God that we see in Genesis chapter 1 through 11. But not only how we worship on Sundays, but that every single day and every single moment of our lives would be changed and we would be better worshipers in everything that we're doing, whether we're eating or drinking, we would do it all for God's glory because we are going to see that he is worthy of all of it. And so as we go through these first chapters of Genesis, these first moments of God's big story, let's approach it with awe and wonder, seeking to truly know God as he has revealed himself and desiring nothing more at the end of the day than to walk away as better worshipers, loving the creator of the cosmos with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I love how Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament theologian, introduces this section. He's got this big book on Old Testament theology, and this is how he discusses the idea of creation. And I'm going to let Bruce finish us off today. Darkness, water, and wind. The curtain goes up on a darkened stage and a voice is heard. Then a brilliant light blankets the landscape and dazzles the eyes. The cosmic drama of salvation history opens with an awe-inspiring display of theatrics. The palpable excitement and anticipation is pregnant in the text, available to all. Unfortunately, many readers today don't sense the drama, nor understand these pivotal words rich with meaning. This narrative of origins, or this story of beginnings, not only opens the cosmic drama of the Bible's theme, God interrupting into the chaos to establish his rule over everything, it also lays the foundation for the biblical worldview of ethical monotheism or following after God. God takes his rightful place on his throne in the heavens with the earth as his footstool, appoints human beings as his regents to rule the earth, and establishes laws for Israel in order in the order of creation. And so that's where we begin today, with the God of the universe taking his rightful place on his throne in the heavens with the earth as his footstool. And that's the foundation on which everything else in Scripture rests. And that's how we are going to approach the book of Genesis over these next few months. And so I encourage you to read ahead pray expectantly, and prepare to come together week after week and just be in awe of the character of God as we see him introduce himself to his people. Let's pray.